0: Welcome to the Breaking the Stars podcast, where we feature stories of people from non-traditional backgrounds that broke into tech. I'd right, have a question for all of you guys and girls. What does a million students, the top medium publication, eleven thousand jobs all have in common? Times up. The answer is Free Code Camp, and today we interview the founder, Quincy Larson, where he shares how his three-person remote team was able to accomplish all of that and more. For those of you that are wondering, um, Free Code Camp is entirely free, as it says in the name. You're able to get all the skills that you need to land one of these jobs in tech without having to go to a boot camp. But if you have gone through all of Free Code Camp certifications and courses or gone through a boot camp or are just trying to look to break into tech, we also have another announcement for you guys. Today, we are officially launching the Breaking Into Startups 5-Step Challenge. So if you go to breakingstartups.com slash challenge, you can learn how to tell your story from a position of power, join other people that have similar backgrounds to you, let us know what you are interested in, whether it's engineering, design, sales, et cetera, so we can help you navigate. You can learn how to connect with people on a genuine level and not just on a transactional level and much, much more. We're excited, want to hear your feedback, and can't wait to break in. If you want to learn more about these types of programs, uh, share uh, who you are interested in learning from into the Breaking Stars Facebook community, and let's break in. Growing up, we're told that in order to be successful, you need to be a banker, a doctor, or a lawyer. That's what the gatekeepers want you to think but we're part of something bigger. We're part of a technological revolution. Either you're at the table or on the table. Get in the end. 10X. Yo, 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 this is Ruben Harris. I'm here with the homies Archer and Timor Meister, and this is the Breaking the Stars podcast. Timor, can you please tell the people what we're doing today?
1: Yeah, so today we're recording on a Thursday morning out of App Academy. Uh, we got here before 7 a.m., and all the doors were closed, so we almost got locked out. But then Michael Mack or Michael Mock showed up to class two hours before it even started. He told us he was a listener of the podcast and he let us in. So, shout out to Michael. It's also March 30th and it's not only the end of the month, but it's also Ruben's birthday today. So, <laughs> huge shout out to Ruben for waking up before 6 a.m. and recording with us. 30 is a new 20, by the yeah, way. Yeah, congrats, bro, on your big 30.
0: And in case you guys haven't been, on- Noticing the average age of people starting companies is, is going up. <laughs> yeah.
2: yeah, the uh, the average age of uh startup founders is 40.
0: Okay, wow. okay. All right, so we
1: right. have a few more years uh, to go. That's nice. good. Excellent. So, Arthur, can you please introduce our guest? Yeah, so we've been wanting to record this guest for a while. So we're excited to finally chat today with Quincy Larson, who is the founder of Free Code Camp, an open source community with close to a million developers who are learning how to code. Quincy is a prolific writer and runs the most popular technical medium publication with over 100K visitors a day. Just think about it, 100,000 readers a day with everything you may want to know as you're trying to learn how to code. Quincy has a truly non-traditional background, having been an educator for over a decade, living overseas in China, and in the last few years teaching himself how to code, and now uh, starting this uh, beautiful organization. So, uh, Quincy, you started a little over two years ago. You've built an amazing community of close to a million campers. You've helped over 5,000 people find their first engineering jobs and also helped 6,000 existing developers level up and get even better jobs. We're super impressed by your accomplishments. And tell us a little bit about yourself and what led you to start this amazing organization.
2: Well, thank you for that very generous <laughs> introduction. I really, it, it started when I was running a school. I was a school director and we had, I had a staff of teachers and administrators. And I noticed that everything was really tedious and people were spending a lot of time staring at their computer instead of working directly with the students and and helping them learn. And I saw this opportunity to like try to automate some of the more routine tasks, the day-to-day grade reporting and immigration documentation, attendance reports, Curriculum plan submissions, all these very back office type workflows. And I didn't know what to do, of course. I was just like, maybe there's some way that some of this could be automated. But that little thought kind of spurred me on the path of learning to code. And so I just started off with like you know, spreadsheet macros and using this tool called Auto Hotkey to like program my mouse and my keyboard to click around and fill out forms for me and stuff. And uh, pretty soon, we were able to free a lot of our administrative staff and a lot of our teachers from a lot of that work just through my very rudimentary programming skills that I developed on the job. So that was when I really started to see the potential of automating schools and a lot of the administration to free people up. Got and so I, I left that school director position to try to build tools that schools could use. And along the way, I really needed to learn how to code properly. So I spent, you know, thousands of hours working through Coursera and edX courses and reading programming books and just heads down coding all day long, every day. Awesome. And that's when I really kind of realized like learning to code itself is extremely complicated. And there's not, there wasn't really a great path for somebody who's brand new, just dropped into coding to be able to have a clear path to being able to get a job. So that's when I decided to free code camp.
0: Awesome. Awesome. And speaking of, of automation and tools to optimize things, like when you also mentioned during the pre-chat that you worked some like jobs at Taco Bell and or talked a little bit about how industries are being automated while you were working at those jobs, did you ever build tools to help optimize their workflows as well?
2: No. I mean, when I was in high school and like in college, all through high school and college, I worked kind of these really like basically like in Oklahoma City where I grew up, it was like 5.15 an hour to stand and take people's orders at Taco Bell or to mop the floors of a grocery store. So I would do those kinds of things. And uh, it didn't even really occur to me at the time, but a lot of the stuff I was doing could easily be automated through off-the-shelf robotics. A lot of it is being automated now, but it struck me that if we can educate people, if we can provide reasonably priced or free, preferably education, people don't need to do these menial jobs anymore. You can automate a lot of it. And then they can focus on you know, writing yeah. scripts and building machines to take care of those tasks for them.
1: Yeah. And it sounds like you're like a born uh, problem solver. And uh, going back to what you mentioned, when you, ha- you, when you were working at, at schools, you noticed problems and you wanted to find ways to automate them. And then you started learning how to code. And as you were learning how to code, you realized that not only is it difficult to learn how to code, but figuring out what that path is. Is just as important. And then, as someone who is learning how to code, and Arthur and I had to do this ourselves, you don't know what you don't know. So, it's very hard for you to even decide which language you should be learning first. So, that led you to start Free Code Camp. So, can you just tell us a little bit about, like, kind of the steps of, of what you did and how you came up with the idea to start Free Code Camp?
2: Sure. So, I had actually built a project before that was much more ambitious. -hmm. Called Course Forward, which basically was a recommendation engine to recommend specific courses that you should take based on your goals and based on where your career currently was. And it like pulled in your LinkedIn profile and looked at your skills and your experience. And then it pulled in like I wrote all these scrapers and I processed millions of job postings to try to understand what specific careers, like what the market was looking for. And then it basically just did a diff of those two and recommended a sequence of online courses. That project flopped because people don't want to, you know, spend thousands of hours working through online courses based on the recommendations of an algorithm that took, you know, less than a second to run. Totally understandable. And I started thinking about like, well, if this project was a complete mess and I started thinking about maybe there's a way that we could strip some of this down. Is there one big thing that people could learn that would really help them be able to get a, a good career in 2014, which is when, when I was doing this. And I thought about it for a minute, and it was really clear. JavaScript. JavaScript is the lingua franca of the world. You can use it to program everything from a website to a mobile app to a Roomba, whatever you want to program. You a can drone.
1: Do there's I've seen so many amazing examples of using uh, JavaScript to program a uh, Internet of Things. It's amazing.
2: And Jeff Atwood has a a law. It's called Atwood's Law. It says any program that can be written in JavaScript will eventually be written in JavaScript. (laughs) (laughs) It's
0: a great law. And so you created this this organization and you know, like like Timor said, you know, you you started off with a super ambitious project called Course Forward. You came up with the discovery of JavaScript. And, you know, how did you what lessons you, you shared some lessons that you learned from Course Forward, but like how did you go about taking those lessons to begin? the initial version of free code camp and what did that look like?
2: Well, with the course forward project, I literally put in thousands of hours up front before really anybody used it or looked at it. I was embarrassed to show people an incomplete project. So, I mean, that's a, the rookie mistake. If you're building a project, uh, there's a saying, I think uh, Y Combinator says this, uh, if you're not embarrassed by your yep. first release, you waited too long to launch.
0: Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. I think
1: they Reed Hoffman, and, is, yeah, the Reed Hoffman is the original source. Who said yeah. that. Yep. Okay. Awesome.
2: Yep. Thank you. Reed Hoffman. Yep. So I totally agree with that sentiment. And that was the big thing that I did differently with free code camp was instead of just being in my closet all day coding, you know, <laughs> scrapers and, and recommendation engines and stuff. I, I just, uh, built the most skeletal MVP imaginable and started tweeting about it and trying to get people to use it and care. And then I got feedback from them. And then I just very gradually iterated on that, like shipping code 20 times a day. Like people are like, Oh, this button should be here. Okay. I think I'll try that, you know, and basically just listening to the people who are willing to use it in its very <laughs> um, nascent state.
0: Got it. Got it. And you know, you, you talked about a little bit about trash in the beginning and a little bit about your team. Okay. It was you in the beginning, but can you talk about you've building this with only three people? Can you talk about that team and that's making an impact for millions of people? Cause it's, pretty impressive because a lot of people think it takes a lot more
2: right so i started off literally some crazy guy in his closet tweeting out trying to get people to use this curriculum which at the time was really just a list of different resources like go through harvard's cs50 class then go work through these project Euler problems and work through this you know stanford's javascript based computer science course stuff like that so basically i had this list i had this chat room and I was just trying to blog and get attention so that people would come and hang out in the chat room and work through the courses that I recommended. And uh, I published a blog post that was pretty successful. It was, it was on the top of Hacker News for like several hours one day. What and was it called? It was called A Cautionary Tale of Learning the Code, my own. <laughs> and uh, that drew a lot of interested people who were like, hey, I, I can relate with a lot of the problems you had learning the code.
0: And how much was a lot at that time?
2: uh, It was like, uh, I think we got like maybe, maybe like three or 4,000 people just showed up and registered. And I was just like, wow, this is crazy. You know, (laughs) (laughs) thousands of people are registering. And uh, so I went into overdrive and I was just doing everything I could to try to sustain that critical mass, hanging out in the chat all day long, trying to keep people and answer their questions. and, And then... We, uh, like at the time, that I, ha- I was so embarrassed by the code I hadn't put it all on GitHub. It was just on a private Bitbucket repo. But like mm-hmm. I went through and cleaned up all the API keys and stuff like that and then pushed it to GitHub. And uh, so we had um, two people who, one person who I knew already was very interested in helping. And I convinced him to come and work pretty much full time on Free Code Camp. His name is Berkeley Martinez, he's a JavaScript developer in, in San Francisco. And then there was another guy who I didn't know at the time, but he was very, he liked my article and he reached out to me. His name is Michael Johnson. He was a recent college graduate in Washington, D.C. He was like a non-traditional college grad in the sense that he'd basically been a poker player and made money doing that and made money as a session musician playing jazz drums. And uh, I think that's how he had kind of made a living until he, I think he got into Harvard and work through that and finish that. And so he reached out to me as well. And he was already applying for jobs. And he wrote about this experience actually on Medium if you're interested. He reached out to me. And so the three of us kind of formed this team, Berkeley being a self-taught developer who had a mechanical engineering background. Mm-hmm. So the three of us just continued to build out the platform and we've just been uh hammering away at it. And Michael Johnson runs the nonprofit section, like helps with all the nonprofit projects and helps organize teams of developers to build nonprofits out in Washington, D.C. And then Berkeley runs all of our infrastructure and does our core platform development.
0: So what's even more impressive about your team is not only are you lean, but you also have a, a remote team, which I think is also very impressive because it's, it's one thing to you know work in an office every day, but work in separate locations to work efficiently. you know, This is proof that it's possible. I um, mean, And for the listeners that aren't super clear on what Free Code Camp is, again, just to clarify, you can go to Free Code Camp and learn how to code for free by going through their projects and going to their map section, which kind of lays out how you learn how to code. And Quincy will go into more detail about that. But the other piece is they have this nonprofit thing where, you know, once you go through the challenges and correct me if I'm wrong, Quincy, you're also able to get real world experience working on projects that these nonprofits have made available that you can point to once you've completed the courses that you can show when you are looking to get, land a job. Is that accurate?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So through the course of Free Code Camp, you'll build about 25 different standalone projects, everything from you know, tic-tac-toe to uh, a bunch of data visualizations, a bunch of APIs, stuff like that. And then you'll also, if you continue working on it, you'll, you'll have production code that a nonprofit is running that you can point to with future employers. And you can say, look, that nonprofit uses that. Like Thousands of people are touching the software I wrote every day.
1: Yeah, it's amazing that you're helping nonprofits who may have technical needs, but can't afford necessarily to hire a team of developers to come to you and basically say, hey, I have this project I need help with. And then the campers who just recently learned how to code can come together and collaborate as a team and deliver this Tool that could help these nonprofits make a difference for our listeners. Can you give an example of a tool that one of your teams built?
2: Sure. So uh, one quick example, we built a uh, food bank application. Basically, there's a nonprofit food bank in uh, I think it's a tr- Vancouver or I think it's Toronto. Sorry, and basically the software we wrote does all the logistics of tracking the inventory of the food bank, figuring out what needs to go on what truck even has like a web interface where families can go to sign up to receive food through the food bank. And all that, you know, is integrated into a big database. So it's basically like a full enterprise solution end to end for this food bank. And, uh, that's one thing we built. Another thing we built recently was the conference for crimes against women. They have a annual conference and we wrote the software for them to be able to, you know, plan that and have all the speakers lined up and wow. issue the tickets and all of, all those things.
0: That's powerful. So,
2: and yep. all these solutions, we're, we're making like totally open source organization agnostic versions of these. So, you know, we're building like an open Little League tool. So Little Leagues don't have to pay, you know, $10,000 a year for mediocre wow. <laughs> enterprise software. that's not really designed for Little Leagues. Mm-hmm. Little wow. League is just like a, a use case that's shoehorned in. Yeah. So we're, we're building that. We're building a ton of these open source tools specifically to help organizations in aggregate. That's like beautiful. A yeah. whole lot of organizations at once.
1: Yeah. And just to give our listeners an idea, on your website, it says that the people or the developers who've worked on these projects combined, they've contributed close to $1.4 million in coding hours to these nonprofits. So that's just a huge impact that your community was able to not only like not only create these products, but um, they're also adding value. Or they're, they're saving
0: also, they're saving the nonprofits. Yeah, money. they're
1: saving that money that can go towards what the nonprofits do best. And uh, now they have tools that also allow them to run more efficiently, which is super important.
0: The other thing that I think is is very interesting about what you're creating here, Quincy, is that you know a lot of people think that the engineering talent only exists in Silicon Valley. Can you talk a little bit more about the, you said only like a third of them are in the US, right? Can you talk a little bit more about that?
2: Right. So of of the campers, which is what we call people who are working through FreeCodeCamp, only about a third of campers are here in the US. FreeCodeCamp is extremely popular in India, Nigeria, China, a lot of countries outside the US. It's pretty popular. I mean, the English speaking world Primarily, just because we haven't yet launched our internationalization effort, but we have translated most of it into Spanish and we're translating it into Portuguese and Arabic, some other major languages. But it's very much talent is evenly distributed around the world. Hard working, motivated people are evenly distributed around the world. National borders do not, you know, cordon off talented people. They're, they just, they are just kind of. They snap into awareness and say, "Hey, I want to do something," and they sit down and they put in the work. One thing I'll tell you about our community is we do everything completely remotely. You know, like I actually haven't even met a lot of our core team members, like our core contributors, in person yet. I hope to eventually, but you know, we have people from all over the world, all ages. We've got a core team member who's fourteen. We've got a core team member who's in his fifties. You know, and wow. uh, they're all working together toward the goal of expanding free online education.
0: That's really cool. Speaking of free online education, I mean, you you also did surveys of the people that went through the campers and you you mentioned that about 60% of them have student loans. So like, not only are you providing value for nonprofits, you're providing value for these individuals that, you know, even though they went to school, you know, they're still trying to find a way out and you're helping them get jobs. Can you talk a little bit more about, you know, stories about around that or your thoughts around that?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, they're like the typical campers, if there is such a thing, would probably be somebody in their late 20s, early 30s, who maybe has, maybe is married, maybe has kids, maybe doesn't, probably worked full time, probably has student loans, may have a mortgage. They're busy <laughs> and they're, they're busy doing a whole lot of things and it's hard for them to find time to sit down and code. So we made Free code Camp completely asynchronous. You can do it totally at your convenience Pretty much everything doesn't even require sound. Like we've, we're getting rid of the videos in favor of just having everything be 100% interactive where you're just coding in the editor and you're getting instantaneous feedback on whether the tests are passing and stuff like that. You can do it from anywhere. Uh, you like we have this massive chat room and forum where you can go and interact with people at any time of the day because people are up all the time because it's worldwide. And so whoever you happen to talk to at the time, you can get help from them in our, in our help chat rooms and stuff. And it's very critical to us that it's completely asynchronous, that people can do it at their convenience. And also, it's important to us that everything can be done right in the browser because we have a lot of campers who don't necessarily have like powerful computers. Maybe they're working in a library. A lot yeah. of them are working through Free code Camp on a mobile phone. There's a student named uh, Pre-Tom who uh, he's literally, he was, he's not working as a developer, but he was, you know, Basically his mom he lived in rural India and his mom went and cleaned other people's houses and uh, he was able to get a hold of an android phone and he worked through our curriculum on an android phone.
0: Wow. That's impressive. That's and and you touched a little bit more on some of the other students that um that have gone through your program and we'll go into that in a second but I think something else that's very unique that you're doing. I mean some other people have started dabbling in this as well as is the certificates that you provide because you know even though you know, there's traditional education. You've come from that background. You can see with the internet, um, there's going to be more more ways to verify the skills that you have and what you've done. And as time goes on, you know, they'll be more relevant to employers. But can you talk a little bit more about your thoughts on certificates for people that have completed the various sections in the Free Code Camp map section?
2: Sure. So Free Code Camp certificates are currently broken down into three sections. We have a much more robust curriculum that we're about to launch. It's like we call it our beta curriculum. It's at betafreecocamp.com slash map. And that has actually has six certificates. What we decided to do is break them down into smaller certificates and to make them as modular as possible. Even though we'd ideally like that people work through the entire curriculum because we really do believe that, you know, before you get your first developer job, you should try to gear up as much as you can. It's about twelve hundred hours worth of coursework total, but it's six two hundred hour certificates. So I'll just walk you through the the six real quick. So the first one is responsive web design, which involves you know HTML, CSS, using Flexbox, doing some basic visual design, and that involves building five different responsive websites. There's no JavaScript at all in that section. We wanted to intentionally like make JavaScript its completely own section first. So the next section is JavaScript algorithms and data structures, also a 200-hour certificate. You build a whole lot of algorithms, You learn about a lot of advanced data structures. Then we have the front-end libraries certificate, which covers React, Redux, Bootstrap, a whole lot of tools to make web development a lot easier. Then we have a data visualization certificate, which focuses on D3 and visualizing data sets. We don't actually cover data science properly, just because it's a massive field that involves a lot of mathematics and statistics. But data visualization, if you already have the data, you can do some really amazing things with it.
1: Yeah, yeah, and you, uh, Ruben, mentioned earlier that there's a a lot of people who've been able to find these jobs. So, can you just give us an an idea of what type of backgrounds do people who do end up finding jobs? What kind of backgrounds do they come from, and what kind of startups do they join after?
2: Sure, it's a wide array. Like, I think about half of people have a four year degree already Mm -hmm. before they start free Code Camp, but not in computer Um,
1: science, right?
2: That's correct. Only about Less than 20% have like an IT-related degree. Mm -hmm. So, if you include all the engineering disciplines and everything, maybe like a quarter of them have engineering degrees. The rest of them have studied some other topic like business administration, liberal arts. There's a long tail of different things that they've studied. And we have like a we do an annual survey that we make public. We make the entire data set uh, public with an open data license, and uh, you can uh, check out some of the specific. Statistics from there. Yeah. Can you, basically, can you share
1: a few of the, yeah, some, uh, ones of the that, some of the highlights. All from right. The survey. Well,
2: I can, I, can, uh, I can just bang through these real quick. Yeah. So about 21% of people who are working through Free Cool Camp are women. Again, we'd like to see it much higher. But you have to consider we're an international organization and not every country is as progressive as the United States yet, unfortunately. But we're confident that that number will continue to, to go up about 2% of people working through Free Code Camp collect disability from their government. Oh. So we have, we have a lot of people who are deaf or, or completely blind that are miraculously able to get a whole lot of work done anyway. And about 8% people working through Free Code Camp have served in the military, not necessarily the U.S. military, but in their country's military. About Probably closer to about 70% of people are over 25 that are working through Free Code Camp. It, we're really adult focused and there are a lot of great nonprofits that are focusing on kids like Khan Academy and code.org. but mm-hmm. we want to focus on adults yep. helping adults transition. Some other interesting things. A lot of people have kids. A lot of people take care of elderly relatives. A lot of people have debt yeah, and uh,
1: college most, debt right or co- yeah, is it? college
2: debt mm-hmm. or mortgages. And a lot of people like the average camper makes makes about like less than $40,000 a year.
1: Oh. And then, or are, are they making less than forty thousand a year before the before taking the
2: curriculum? Or yeah, uh, yeah, before, like that's their that's their current salary while they're learning the code. Mm-hmm. And then, a lot of them working in hospitality and or le- other industries. And then
0: you have like almost half of them that are underemployed. And how how do you? Oh yeah, you I mean work, underemployed means working a job that's below your education level, which I thought that was pretty interesting as well.
2: Yeah. Now the official American statistics on this, from uh, I think 2013, were that like as many as 40 percent of people consider themselves underemployed, and it looks like free co camps demographic is right there. It's like 42 percent of campers consider themselves underemployed, like they're in a job where they're not using their college degree.
0: Yeah, and then when it comes to the people that are, do you have any stats on like going through these stats with you at the same time, but about the average salaries that people are getting whenever they do get a job out of those 5,000?
2: So the of the ones that have gotten a job? Sorry. I would
1: imagine it's probably a little hard because it's international, so yeah. uh, different countries will have... That's true. Like, you would have to adjust, right? For, for location. Their, That's for true. location.
0: Okay.
2: What I can tell you is people are reporting salaries. Like, whenever, whenever we do hear about salaries, they're generally normal, like, junior developer-type salaries.
0: Got it. And so g- given that... You know, you've been in traditional education. You're building free code camp. Certificates are changing things, and now boot camps are popping up. Can you talk a little bit more about your thoughts on boot camps? We've had a lot of boot camp founders on the podcast, and I would love to hear your take on on that.
2: Yeah, I think it's. I think boot camps present a great opportunity for people to be able to like get together with a lot of other motivated learners and really crank for several months straight on learning the code. And of course, if they've got good advisors and if they've got jo- good job placement help, those are huge benefits as well. Free Code Camp's community is pretty geographically spread out, and most of them would not be able to attend a coding boot camp, either for economic reasons, like the opportunity cost of leaving work for several months would be too high, or because they just have a whole lot of other obligations. Kids, maybe they're already, they're currently in grad school or something like that, and it's just not a, uh, Viable opportunity for them. Yeah. But like, I strongly support the efforts of coding boot camps personally. And a lot of coding boot camps are using Free Code Camp as their core curriculum now. Mm -hmm. And we're hopeful that we can provide like a really robust curriculum for them to use so that they can focus on all these other value added things they can do.
0: Yeah. And, And speaking of, you know, coding boot camps adopting your curriculum, you know, we talked a little bit about how you worked with a bunch of universities and and placing students into things like that or working with students in those different places. And so even though you're not licensing them out to those universities, maybe like, you know, instead of other schools can also use your, your platform as well. And from what I understand, you're open to just letting them use that.
2: Absolutely. We're completely open source. Like a lot of university directors or um, department chairs from universities will reach out to me and say, we really want to use Free Code Camp. Like, can we Hop on a Skype call and work out the details of licensing this, or you know what would be involved. And I'm like, no need. Just grab it and use it. Yeah. You know? So for
1: uh, people listening who may not know what open source means, can you just give a brief definition of what that stands for?
2: Sure. So it depends on the individual open source license, but we have a very permissive open source license. We use the uh, Berkeley Software Distribution three license, the BSD three, and basically that allows for people to do pretty much anything they want with our software. And they can even they can charge people money to use our software basically if they want to. We don't have any commercial restrictions at all. And pretty much everything we've created is Creative Commons licensed as well. And like our data sets are open data. So we have tons of researchers, you know, going through the big data sets we release. And uh, like our goal is just to generate as much information and it, it be as powerful a resource as possible for people who want to learn to code. That's
1: awesome. Yeah. And um, so you've come from a, an education background and now you're teaching people how to code. What is your um, like view of the future over the next five, 10 years? Do you think everyone should, uh, should try to learn how to code? What do you think the direction, which direction do you think we're all headed in?
2: I think that everybody needs to learn how to code. It's not a matter of should. I think it's really a matter of need. The mandate of the 21st century is going to be program or be programmed.
1: Mm-hmm. Boom. That's heavy. And this is coming from someone who was teaching English, right? And you're a journalist major. So you're coming from more of a liberal arts background, right? Before you jumped into coding.
2: Absolutely. So the way I like to, to frame this for people who don't really understand, like, or just haven't thought about the power of computers and their influence on the modern world, the 20th century and most of the centuries before that were defined by one human being managing other human beings. And that being how work gets done, right? The 21st century and probably (laughs) centuries going forward are going to be defined by humans managing machines. The way you manage machines, the way you communicate with them is through code. What code is, is it represents very specific instructions that tell the machine what to do next and what to do in certain situations. It's very much just like having a policy handbook or training a human worker Except that you're training a machine and it's not nearly as smart as a human worker. It can't deal with ambiguity. It can't make good decisions under pressure. It basically you have to hold its hand and walk it the entire way there. But once you do it once, once you've showed the machine how to do that task, it can do that task repeatedly.
0: Yeah, yeah. And 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 what's really cool about just free coconut kind of, again is not just all these surveys and the amount of people you've impacted, but the non-traditional backgrounds. I mean, I do want to talk about the media and publication. That you've built on top of all of this, and the thing that I'm reading right now as we're talking is the one that was created by Florian Bages who was born blind. Like in this survey, like one in hundred developers are blind, and one in two hundred developers are deaf. Is that for real? How does that? How do people do that?
2: That's based on the Stack Overflow dataset. Yes, they haven't publicly released the full dataset, but that was based on the report that I uh, pulled that factoid from. How do how do people do that? Well. Florian Belgers just grabs an off-the-shelf laptop, installs a tool called the screen reader, and then clicks around, and whenever he, whenever he tabs over to something, it reads something really fast. If you go to FreeCodeCamp SoundCloud, you can hear a, uh, a sample of this thing playing. It's literally playing it like 20 times normal human speech. Like It would take incredible training and practice to be able to understand what the heck it's saying. It's wow. basically reading like, you know, open bracket, <laughs> double quote, you know, stuff like that, <laughs> reading code out loud. And then he listens to it and he just goes line by line. And in his mind, he builds up kind of a working model of what this code looks like. Wow. It's really not that different from how you know a sighted person would look at lines of code and kind of build up this mental construct of how everything fits together. It's not really that different from how a mechanic working on a car would look at the different components and, and try to diagnose what was going on just through touching things and tapping things. We're all kind of blind in a sense in that we don't have the full picture of what's going on under the hood. And we have to gradually discern that. That was very poetic. Florian's literally blind. Like he's never seen anything his entire life. Wow. And I can only imagine the additional challenges that he has to face doing that. But he's very good at what he does. He's worked with Microsoft and some other companies on like accessibility issues. And, you know, he's just one of many, many blind developers out there who are proving that it's just as something to overcome, but it's not anything that you can't do. I mean, I I wrote an article a while back on Quora about people who have overcome, you know, all kinds of physical setbacks, and, and then there are people who have sensory setbacks as well, who just you know persevere. Yeah, anybody well, can learn to code if they are. There's sufficient.
1: even developers who have math disabilities like numbers dyslexia. dyslexia like, yeah. there's just like so many people that are coding that have. Various uh, disorders, and that hasn't stopped them from being productive engineers. Yeah, and,
0: and it's super inspiring. And, and we talked about traction for free code camp. Can you talk about how you went about building the Medium publication and how you got it to be this massive organization yeah. that's read by so many people?
2: And some stats.
0: And some, some stats on stats, that outside yeah. sure. of the 100,000 people a day.
2: So, um, you know, I'm the only editor for the Medium publication. So I, like I worked as a newspaper editor for a while, shortly after college, before I went to China. And along the way, I kind of learned like, what works and what doesn't work, what people want to read, and then the actual technical skill of like editing text and making things concise and making things clear and things like that. So I go through and personally edit all the different articles, and we have published something like 800 articles by now. And basically, what I do is I proactively reach out to authors who inspire me who've written good stuff or who I think would be able to write good stuff. Like I reached out to a woman named Amber Thompson, Amber Thomas, and uh, she had built this amazing data visualization of the top 10 box office hits of 2016, like the biggest movies, right? And, you know, there's Star Wars, Rogue One, there's uh, Zootopia and, and movies like that. And what she had found when she did this big data analysis is that none of the movies had good gender representation in terms of having women be central characters or have a lot of dialogue. And so I saw this and I was just blown away because you wouldn't have guessed it from looking at like the movie posters or how the movies are marketed, but women are seriously underrepresented in these movies as characters. And she did literally counted like every single word. She like wrote a bunch of scripts to dig through the transcripts, determine gender of different characters and stuff like that. And she bought her methodology she basically posted this data visualization and I was just floored by it. And I was like, this is going to be huge. But I waited and like, it, it wasn't huge. Like, you know, like so many great things, it just kind of went and dissipated in the ether and nobody really noticed it. So I reached out to her and I was like, hey, Amber, would you be interested in writing about how you built this visualization for our medium publication? Because we can get this in front of a lot of people. So she did. And then it, you know, she wrote it and I edited it and we published it and publicized it in our email blasts and stuff and it blew up and you know got picked up by uh Mashable, IGN, a whole bunch of international press writing about her uh her data visualizations. So in many ways it's interesting because my role as the editor of the medium publication is to go out and find these talented people and give them a platform. Yeah,
1: and just to give a shout out, some of our guests on the podcast like Haseeb and Preeti and and Austin and Austin. They've been, um, and John Dang, right? Yeah. They've been um, contributors to the Medium publication as well. And their posts get like thousands and thousands of uh, likes and shares. So you you literally build a community where now it's not just you writing th- these stories, but you're empowering more and more people. Yeah, and amplifying the, the voice of yeah. people of stories that need to be heard, right?
2: Exactly. I'm, like, I'm not that interesting of a person, but there are so many interesting people out there that I can go and find and convince them to. That- come and uh, share their insights and share their learnings with, uh, with our community at large.
0: That's amazing, that's amazing.
1: Yeah and, yeah, and I read your publication every day too. And recently you actually did a post on uh, VPNs. Can you just give a shout out and can you just explain why VPNs are important, especially with what's going on in the news?
2: So there were, like, it was just a crime that this was not reported more widely. I think people were completely uh, preoccupied with the healthcare bill, and you know the Russia scandal and all that stuff but basically in the last week the last 8 or 9 days both the senate and the house have passed a congressional review act that will repeal the federal communications commission's privacy rules like their privacy safeguards that would prevent internet service providers like Comcast and Verizon from taking ordinary citizens data packaging it and selling it to advertisers, selling it to governments, selling it to really anybody who wants to pay for it, there wouldn't be any restrictions on it. Even private citizens could potentially buy their neighbor's internet browsing history. I mean, it's like totally messed up. Like, why the heck would that be legal? Nobody benefits from that, right? But the internet service providers have spent millions and millions of dollars basically supporting candidates and essentially bribing them to vote in favor of the internet service provider lobbies. Interests as opposed to the public's interests. So this law, this is law now.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And to give people (laughs) an idea of what that means, and I think you explained it really well. That means that anything you browse online, let's say you go to Target or you go to a website that you don't want anyone to know, the internet provider sells that data to anyone who is willing to buy it. And a lot of the time it's advertisers, but it could be bad actors. And now they could use that data to target you in other places online because they have your entire browsing history. Yeah, and and I think you make an analogy to just phone calls. So a lot of people use um phones to communicate with each other, but the providers, the telecom providers cannot share that hey like you called this person. They can't share who you're calling and like and that's just part of your like freedoms of being like living in America and like your constitutional rights. So when it comes to the internet, they're basically giving away those freedoms to internet providers to just share it with the whole world, even foreign governments and so on. What is your advice on how people can protect themselves?
2: Well, my first advice is use encryption. Encrypt your, like this is just general advice, but like encrypt your laptop. If you're using Windows, if you're using Mac, there's a built-in tool that will completely encrypt your hard drive. Second, I would strongly recommend using encryption, like use websites that use HTTPS, for example, so that their traffic is encrypted and protected from the internet service providers from being able to directly snoop on it. There's a tool that the Electronic Frontier Foundation created called HTTPS Everywhere that will help you uh, make sure that you're always using HTTPS when you browse the web. And then even if you are using those tools, the internet service providers still have data on what specific websites you visit. So for example, if you visit babycenter.com, there's a very good chance that you are pregnant <laughs> or that your spouse is pregnant, right? So that's personal you can, you, you information, can use things even like even without knowing what you do there.
0: You can probably use things like Tor browser though, right?
2: You can absolutely use Tor, but what's more practical for a lot of people is just using what's called a virtual private network, a VPN, and that will basically protect all your traffic. Using Tor is good, but it's it's a little slower. It's what a VPN provider expensive. are you using? So I'm personally looking around because this is this just came about and I want to get a good deal, but I am looking at this thing called, like, uh, private access. They published this. They paid $600,000 to publish a a full-page ad in the Sunday New York Times last Sunday, basically trying to raise awareness of what the the ISPs were doing. And they did this against their own interest. They actually will stand to benefit tremendously from this bill because everybody's going to need a VPN now. But they thought it was just such a heinous congressional act to get rid of these privacy restrictions. They felt obligated to do that. To me, that signifies that they have character as an organization.
1: I want to, yeah. I want to get uh, there. if I had a suggestion for your campus to create a project, That's exactly what I was going to say. Uh, <laughs> I think it's uh, pretty clear that your community needs to come together and create an open source VPN tool
0: or, or anything related to security, like a yeah. Signal or something yeah. uh, upgraded.
1: That will protect um, the community. Because so you have an army you're creating.
2: Yeah. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, um, like, there are a lot of great open source tools, but they are not just clicking. They're not just plug and play, right? Like yeah. they, A lot of them involve you getting onto Amazon and creating a server and then going in SSHing into that server and running a bunch of code. Like, the typical layperson won't necessarily be able to use that. And then you have to worry about, like, okay, you're on your phone. Or you, can, you're not, you can't SSH in and tunnel through a VPN on your phone. You have to get like some additional tools and stuff. So it's, it's pretty complicated to really protect yourself. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people just don't use phones. <laughs> I've run into security experts who just don't use phones. They carry their laptop around and they, they hop on uh, Wi-Fi and then they log into their secure server and then they do stuff. That's <laughs> the extreme of privacy because if you think about it, like no matter what you do, your phone's tracking you wherever you go. Yeah. You can't turn that off. Even the the AT&T needs to know where you are to be able to send like calls your way. It's like that South South
0: Park episode where they tried to stop it from following them. And even when they had it off, it was still following them.
1: Yeah, it's scary. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So thanks for sharing us. And um, so at this point in the podcast, we do the lightning round. And this is where the Arthur Rubin and I will ask you questions. But Try to provide brief answers that are filled with strategies and your resources or um, any tactics that you've used to teach yourself how to code and get to where you are today. Arthur, take it away. Yeah. So I'm going to switch it up this time. So since you have such a broad international community, if you could make one uh, tweet or one Facebook post that the whole world could see, what would it be?
2: Think for yourself.
1: Got
0: it. it. That's good. That's good. So you' you're a family man and you have kids and you're building this community for all these people, and you, your daughter's one, correct? Yeah. you know, what advice would you have for her after she's you know done reading or like what kind of goals do you have for her when it comes to life and, and how do you approach the next generation?
2: I definitely want her to be as powerful as possible in terms of being independent, thinking independently. Evaluating situations for herself, there are a lot of power structures in our society that oppress people that take away their power. I want her to be able to circumvent those if necessary, so that she can, you know, exert her will on the universe.
1: Love it, yeah. And I love the idea of bringing the power back to the people. Yeah. Um, The next um, question—it's about uh, just giving advice. What is uh, so? You've learned. You've taught yourself how to code. And I think a lot of people go through that struggle when they first uh, open up their laptop and they start reading through some documentation and they a lot of them give up. I personally give up two times before I actually learn how to code the third time around. So can you talk about some of those struggles that you faced when you were learning how to code and how you overcame them?
2: Sure. So one struggle I faced was, of course, just running out of motivation and just hitting a wall and feeling like I'm alone and that I'm stupid everybody feels no matter how smart they are the computer makes sure that you feel stupid because unlike dealing with like a human who's polite or something like that the computer has no problem just telling you you're wrong you're wrong you're wrong you're wrong you're wrong every time a test fails or every time you get an error message and just accepting that like this is what the learning process looks like one thing i i strongly recommend that everyone do two things to keep themselves motivated and moving forward one code every single day even if it's just for like 30 minutes Find time, make time, so that you can keep that forward momentum. Two, hang out with as many people who code as you can. Go to meetups, go to coffee and code events, go hang out at the offices of a local tech company if they'll let you. You know, to just surround yourself with that energy of people who can and are coding every day.
1: Yeah, and uh, can you tell our listeners a little bit about the hundred-day uh, coding challenge that you've uh, created?
2: So I didn't create this and. In- I think it's been around for a while, but there's a camper named Alexander Holloway who is in Toronto. He worked through our curriculum and got a developer job pretty easily, like pretty quickly. And they're all—we just seem to have this concentration of ambitious campers in Toronto. They have like a very active free code camp study group, and like they're all like every day. It seems like somebody's getting a job. Um, you're
1: the average and- of the five people. You're closest with right. <laughs>
2: Absolutely. Yeah, you're, you're the average of your five friends. I totally agree with that. Because, you know, humans are very social animals, and they'll gradually adapt to the people around you. So, you know, if people are bringing you down, you can't always get rid of those people, because maybe they're your family members, you know, but you just have to, to figure out a way to compensate. But what Alexander Calloway did was just really, really drive home this notion that like, you can learn to code and coding for 100 days straight will help you get there. It'll be a huge Step toward being a, a stronger developer, and so he just wrote several Medium articles and created a hashtag and created a Twitter bot and like I don't know if he specifically created all these things, but basically this whole movement kind of swelled up around him. And now there are more than a thousand people committed to uh, do 100 days of code back in January, and I think a lot of those people are starting to finish.
0: That's awesome. That's awesome. And I think that what you've created with Free Code Camp is is a great model not just for uh, people learning for how to code but also uh for education in general and so for people that want to build a program similar to free code camp for another field, are you like gonna create a playbook for them or are they gonna is there kind of like do you have like recommendations for like what they need to do in order to get to that point? I know you shared a lot of gems through the podcast, but you know if i wanna i don't know create a sales version of this what what should I do?
2: First of all, like don't start from scratch. I didn't start from scratch when I built FreeCodeCamp. I used this tool called the uh, Hackathon Starter Boilerplate. My friend Sahat built it several years ago, and uh, I built FreeCodeCamp on top of his boilerplate. I didn't like say you know Node, create new <laughs> project or whatever. <laughs> like I didn't start from scratch. Uh, so now that FreeCodeCamp exists, frankly, if you're building like an e-learning tool, there's no reason not to just fork FreeCodeCamp and use some of the code we've already built to get you, like jump you a year in basically in terms of development.
1: And by Um, fork, so some of our listeners are technical. Some of them are just starting to learn how to code. Can you explain what what a fork is?
2: Sure. So if you go to GitHub, basically forking is just duplicating a uh, code repository, like all the source code that runs FreeCodeCamp. And you can duplicate that and then you can run it locally. We have directions for getting it running locally. I think we have directions for deploying it to uh, Amazon or DigitalOcean or one of the... uh, cloud providers, if you want to. Yeah. And,
1: and just, just... And just uh, I'm thinking of my mom who might be listening to this podcast, but an open source project means that the code that the app is running on, it's made public. So anyone can go in and read it. Most companies that people are familiar with, like Facebook's of the world, various websites, they keep the code private and that's their um, competitive edge in the marketplaces. And unlike those companies, free code FreeCodeCamp, made all of their code, like what you're built on public, so now anyone can go and not just read the code, but they can pretty much fork it or copy the code into their own project and then reuse what you've built and build on top of it, right?
0: And thank you for doing that. that's that's some powerful stuff right there. And you know a lot of times we ask ask what you're gonna accomplish, you know what your thoughts are for your plans for 2017 and the future and things like that, for given that you ship like 20 things plus things every single day. You know, what are you trying to accomplish this quarter? And then, you know, for 2017, and then I'll ask you the rest of the question.
2: Sure. <laughs> so um, our primary goal right now is to get our beta curriculum live. And it's not just the curriculum, but we've actually completely refactored the platform so that it's a single page react application. So there's no page loads. You click something and you just instantaneously are there. And um, it's a significantly expanded curriculum. We're adding like 400 new challenges that'll make it a lot easier to tackle the projects. They're all optional. Pretty much every part of Free Co Camp is optional except for the projects. Those serve as the evaluation criteria. But basically, we want to ship that as soon as possible. And then other than that, we're just going to keep trying to create really good medium articles and really good YouTube videos.
0: Wow. Well, this is very inspiring Actually, One more question oh, before
1: yeah. we end. So I personally like to analyze successful people. And can you talk a little bit about your routine, your daily routine? Because you've been able to accomplish a lot. It's amazing how you're able to achieve so much with such a small team. So, can you just share with our listeners what your day to day looks like in terms of your routines,
0: personally and with your team?
2: Sure. So, I am one of those people that has tried like all these different frameworks for getting things done and being productive. And they work for a lot of people. Like one of our campers, Bo Karns, he uh, is creating like basically a new JavaScript-related YouTube video every single day, and he's also working full-time and taking care of his two kids and working... He's a full-time teacher, but he's working toward transitioning into a developer role. You know, he can do that because he's got this incredibly disciplined schedule. For me, I basically don't have a lot of structure. Like, I'll wake up at different times during the day. I will do different things. But basically... The one thing I'm very consistent about is I try to put in like 12 hours a day and uh, that's 12 hours a day in front of the computer every day. Like, I don't think I've taken a day off in like three years. I know that sounds like I'm not expecting everybody to jump out there and do that. But like, frankly, this work needs to be done at some point. And as long as I'm still productively working on it, why not get it done faster rather than later, right?
0: Yeah, no, I mean, I mean, you, you wake up in beast mode every day and some people need structures. Some people don't. And, um, you're, you're knocking it out. And for the people that want to get in touch with you, I know anybody can Google your name and it pops up everywhere. But for, for the people that are listening to this podcast right now, you know, what's the exact way to get in touch with you, the best way to get in touch with you?
2: You can tweet at me. I'm O S S um ossia on Twitter. Open source software is awesome. Um, <laughs> just shoot me a tweet. I try to respond to everybody.
1: Yeah. And then you're also on medium and, um, you should definitely follow Larson on Medium and then also follow Free Code Camp, And uh, you will get daily updates on the new articles that Free FreeCodeCamp community publishes. And that's probably one of the best news sources for myself. Like every day in the morning, I get notified with amazing articles that are relevant to my life and actually content that makes my day better and easier. So highly recommend that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. OK, well, thanks again for everything. And we look forward to seeing what you got going on in the future.
1: Happy birthday, Ruben.
2: (laughs) Happy birthday, Ruben. Thank you all for having me. Yeah,
1: thanks a lot, Quincy. Thanks for checking us out. We appreciate you for listening and always love your feedback on how we can do better. If you enjoyed this, let us know what you thought on the reviews by going to iTunes, searching for Breaking Into Startups, subscribing to our podcast and leaving a review. Also, if you know someone who came from a non-traditional background and is looking to break into tech, Encourage them to sign up to our newsletter or tell them to join the Breaking Into Startups community on Facebook. Remember, if they don't want you in through the front door, go through the back door, around it, under it, or through it. Let's break in.